Welcome to the Learning and Development Podcast. I'm David James from Loop, and each week I chat with guests about what lights them up in the world of people development. This week, I'm speaking with Andy Lancaster, who is Head of Learning at CIPD, where he, and to quote the CIPD's website, plays a key role in the direction and delivery of CIPD's vision for L&D. I've known Andy since he took on the role, and I know he's passionate about driving the profession forward, and this is reflected in a book he's written and that's published by Kogan Page. We cover this and much more in this conversation. So let's get into it. Andy, welcome to the Learning and Development Podcast. Thank you. Brilliant to be here. Firstly, congratulations on your book, Driving Performance Through Learning. In a nutshell, Andy, what's it about and what will practitioners benefit from reading it? I took my experiences. You have to have a very compelling reason uh, to write a book, mm. um, something that caused me to sit up at late nights and um, be drawn away from the football terraces. There had to be a reason for this one. And for me, it was quite a simple proposition. What can we practically do to support the transformation of organisational learning to really support performance improvement? So there's been lots of talk around how does learning change and morph in order to really uh, drive uh, organisational performance and, and KPIs. So for me, it was about writing something, exploring, researching, finding the evidence base for how we can actually support learning directly in the workplace in the flow of work. And straight straight off the bat there Andy there is a as a key distinction between how we talk about the impact of learning and development today to how we did five ten years ago and, and I can go back much much further you're talking about performance and KPIs to and you know to this day there are going to be people who challenge whether that is the role of learning and development but you've been quite clear in your writing and your speaking over the last well, certainly few months if not few years that this is the responsibility of learning and development. Is that right? So it's not the sole thing, but it was really interesting. I spoke recently um, at a conference and mentioned the title of the book and actually had a challenge publicly from someone who said, isn't putting performance in the title a really risky thing to do? Mm. And it took me back a little bit because there's no risk for me at all. If learning in organisations is not driving the organisational agenda, be that in a in a private sector organisation, public sector, wherever you are, learning in the organisation needs to be driving the core purpose. Now, absolutely, there's room for wider learning, personal learning, lifelong career learning. But I think the, the essence of the book is how do we really ensure learning, um, often which is quite costly in terms of the investment, really affects uh, how the organisation performs. And the word performance can be contentious. Again, looking at taking a cursory look at, at on social media, you can see that. What I like about the term is that that it recognises that not organisations, not all organisations, sorry, are businesses. So it's not always about the bottom line. And performance is open to interpretation, perhaps too much interpretation, but but it's still valid. And and you know while it might not be comfortable all the time for learning and development to accept and own performance or interpret, it's it's still valid. I mean, where do you sit on the actual term? So I've, you know, I've had 30 plus years um, in the profession and worked in high tech organisations, worked in charities across the board. I'm now a board member of a third world development charity. Mm. And for me, the issue, it, it doesn't matter what sector you're in, 
we still have to drive the performance of mm. the organization. So for me, if you're in a commercial setting, it might be about sales, it might be about shareholders, it might be about share price. But equally, um, if you're in a public sector organization, this is about delivering excellent services for members of the public against sometimes really tight budgets. In charities, you have a core purpose for why that charity exists. So for me, uh, performance is not a contentious word mm. in the sense of if we are learning professionals in organizations, an absolutely fundamental part of our role is to support the organization to be brilliant at what it does, whatever that might be. Now, you've mentioned there you've uh, you spent 30 odd years in learning development, myself, um, 20 plus, and books about learning and development have changed since we were making our way in the profession. But it's not change for change's sake, is it? Sometimes we get caught up um, or challenged in learning and development for following fads. But you explore how the nature of organisations has changed and continues to change. And that means that traditional approaches to L&D are no longer enough. What are some of those changes, Andy? Right. So when I stood back from the book and tried to think from a practitioner, this is a highly practical book for learning leaders and practitioners. There were three kind of key themes or four key themes that came through. Um, and the first one, which I'll, yeah, I'll unpack for you, is about the emerging organisational landscapes. We really need to understand how organisations are changing. And from that, you then have to lay some essential foundations about how learning is designed and developed. There's foundational principles which we, uh, we can look at in a moment. And that means transformational approaches. We've got to do things differently, and that has a direct impact on the learning function. So in terms of how organisations are changing, what I've done is I, I've um, approached that in the book from three perspectives, work, workforce, and workplace. Um, it's something at CIPD that we, we use as three really useful lenses. So if we just think about work initially, um, operational models are being disrupted everywhere. It doesn't matter what sector you're in, there are creative things going on, which means the way we operated a few years ago are probably going to be different. And to that extent, our past achievements don't guarantee success anymore. Mm. Um, we can't rely on the past. Planning is more difficult. Um, we need to be more agile in our approaches. Our customers, whoever they may be, um, often more demanding now. Data is prevalent everywhere. We're now working in more complex ecosystems. Um, technology is, is coming to the organisation. So the very nature of work means that the way we approach learning has to, to change. We are no longer thinking about work in single workplaces with static workforces. It's, it's kind of you know very different. And to that extent, workforce is changing as well. Probably the greatest range we've ever had of ages in the workplace. You know, I've got my uh, son now entering the workplace as an apprentice. And, um, you know, I'm two thirds of the way through my career and likely with my current pension to be working a long time. So we, we see in the, that the actual workforce is incredibly different, far more flexible. At one time, we had employee uh, full-time employer status. Now we have much more flexibility. Um, aging staff, less hierarchy in organisations. Um, staff are more demanding in what they expect from uh, from the organisations. And and just kind of on third one, on, on workplace, um, yes, single locations are really rare. We know that mm. now. So it's about flexible working. It's about collaborative working, working using tech. So work workforce and workplace are changing so dramatically that the concept of just running a course in the venue it just won't cut it anymore mm. which is i think the the premise of the book we need to think about organizational priorities organizational shape workforce shape workplace change and think how learning fits in that well that's it's all encompassing um and what i'm taking from that as well andy and I, we've mentioned this on uh, previous episodes of uh, of the podcast, I believe with uh, with Perry Timms when we talked about remote workers, it can be deemed one dimensional to think that because somebody isn't in the same location where 
training is delivered that they either miss out or come in. It's that that's a very one-dimensional view. When you look at this in a three-dimensional view, as you've as you've just described there, it doesn't recognise just that our existing frames of reference as far as learning is concerned or our, our current or accepted means of delivery aren't just cutting it though it's the broader expectations of what it means to be an employee what it means to plug into particular teams to be able to do your tours of duty as i think it was mentioned uh, in a in a fascinating book uh, written by um, Hoffman, the guy who leads um, LinkedIn, talking about how people will do tours of duty. Now, if this if this is the case, then we can't just prepare people for work that they may be doing over an extended period of time, but about how we plug people into particular teams, into particular projects, into distinct roles, professions, locations, and and regardless of uh, of not necessarily just the organisational requirements, but we're talking about. Um, the the different needs of of uh, distinct groups of employees. I was reading an article on neurodiversity, and it being whilst it is it it can be a blocker to for employers and those people with perhaps more neurodiverse ways of thinking to be employed. It's one of those things that we almost have to get over as a society, and again, that has implications for learning and development. I love. The concept of three-dimensional organisations, that's a really interesting one. So I guess if you were to take work, workforce and workplace, three dimensions are changing. In the, the modern learning profession has got to think about how that context really drives solutions. So I guess for me in, in writing Driving Performance Through Learning, the issue for me was that has to be the starting place. That's the first chapter. We have to change our framework. So I, I think you're right. The concept of just relying on events and courses. I mean, we, uh, this is being said so much, but the challenge is how do we unpick that and mm. how do we practically work out what it might mean, to, for instance, to think about a dispersed work uh, workforce dotted all over the world um, with multi-generations working in there, um, with new, new methods of management. Maybe we've done that. And perhaps the workplace is now far more technology-based. Mm. That for me i guess the exciting thing about having written the book and gone through the pain of writing a book you just become at the other end and you just realize that the opportunities for this are just absolutely brilliant mm. there are huge challenges that just challenge our whole framework of thinking about learning but the opportunities to leverage whole new ways of delivering learning in the flow of work in the workplace mm. are compelling so again i absolutely stress this doesn't mean we won't be doing face-to-face -face events but now moving learning into the workplace is a compelling um, vision which we must grasp. Andy, how much of L&D not changing and adapting is because L&D doesn't want to change? You're going to have a spectrum here and it'll be the same in any profession. You'll have some folks who may be resistant to change, some who are um, considering change and some who may be a, a more at the pioneering end my experience and i i have a privilege i get to go around the world and i get to meet learning professionals in various sectors globally in general i don't find change is a massive resistance i think the biggest issue is how do we do this mm. is the prevailing thing there clearly there are some who the, the thought of giving up face to face and in some ways for some people it's almost core to their vocation it's a big challenge this is what mm. i do i stand in front of people but um for me it, the compelling thing that i found is that people are struggling to make this transition to this three-dimensional world we've talked about and, and i think one thing that's really helped me in this um if i track back in my career 
I had a number of years as both head of learning and, and head of HR at one of the very large um, substance misuse rehab charities. Mm. So this was working with people with um, heroin addictions, major alcohol addiction, addictions, working in community projects and prisons or whatever. And you might say to me, where are we going with this in terms of addiction? I'll go with you on this one. Mm. What I learned working in that environment and seeing people struggling with the most fundamental changes in their lives, unless you paint a compelling vision, change is a very difficult concept to go, very difficult to go with. Mm. And the thing I learned from very experienced workers working with people struggling to achieve change was the compelling vision was really important. And interesting for me, when I looked and I've I've designed many management development programs. What are the change models we have? Kubler-Ross, which is based around bereavement and major challenge, a model which is steeped with negative emotion. Mm. Not saying that change won't have that, but my experience is change does not need to be a fear-inducing prospect if the vision is correct. Um, and again, even if you look at Cotter's eight changes, you know, I, I think we need to go pre that. And, and one of the models we used um, was called the trans-theoretical model, which you don't see appearing very many places because it's based in healthcare uh, by some guys called Prochaska and Di Clemente. Now, this is really important for me. And this, as I said, I've, I've called this out in the book. They talk about pre-contemplation as the key starting point for change. And that's about why do I need to change, mm. which then goes into how on earth am I going to make the first steps in change? So working with folks who've got substance misuse challenges, you painted a very compelling picture about the need for change might have been around your health care or, or your, your health, those kind of things. And then you built a very positive vision. And for me, writing the book, this just flooded back to me that for learning professionals, we need to have a very clear foundational vision of what this looks like. It's mm. scary thinking where we're going. And to that extent, you know, in one of the early chapters of the book, I kind of challenged myself, is it right to use an addiction model? Mm -hmm. Is it? I mean, is this... Oh, and the more I thought about this, do you know, in some ways, David, we are addicted to courses and events. Mm. There is an addictive nature of learning and development that we're very tied into these. So to me, it's not about a resistance to change. It's about... Often we are paralysed, not quite knowing how to go into that, which is why I spent all those hours writing Driving Performance Through Learning, because this is a practical approach as to, as to how you can make that shift in your practice. Mm. Well, that's fascinating. I I completely agree with you that that learning and development lacks a vision uh, of of where it where it could go for for what it could achieve. And part of that reason, which I'd love to discuss with you, is because of the fragmented nature of learning and development as perceived by practitioners. And what I mean by that is that we look at our range of activities and we wonder how which of those activities can help in any given situation. But we're not creating an overall vision. It's literally just going to the toolbox, which... It, it might might actually be okay. And it works well for, um, for a particular... Um, any a DIY or for a a handyman going to the toolbox to look to to tr to use the right tools, but as for a profession that in a very short amount of time has morphed from a traditional face to face experience, albeit when work perhaps was more predictable, more manual, more repeatable, we always talk back to it. It replicating more industrial times or, or Victorian education system to one where we've got tools at our fingertips to put the classrooms onto people's desks. Then we can put classrooms into one hour sessions and beam them around the world. 
I wonder whether we have just become so fixated on our tools that we've never really considered what this looks like when we bring it all together. And I suppose more ultimately speaking, with a, with a vision, painting a picture of the future that is better with us operating at our fullest and more com comprehensive than perhaps those deliverers of content and programs. I think you're right. Um, you see some great job titles around in learning now. There's some crackers. Mm. Um, some of them I look at, I just think that would, you know, I've seen learning architect mm -hmm. mentioned and part of me recoils a little bit mm. because I'm 30 years into this. So I've, I've, I've seen lots of change over the day, but there is something around the architecture thing, which I think is really important. So just picking up on your point, you might have a tool bag with stuff which you you know mate, we've got to get a we've got to get above the the, the pragmatic you know pragmatic stuff and i think the architecture thing is a wonderful thing this looks different mm. it's about the vision to construct this in a different way and i guess if you're even thinking hey i'm riffing now in this one if, you, if you're thinking in architecture mm. you know architecture's changed massively you know we, we have sustainable solutions now we have technologies in the home now which we would never have imagined we would have had um you know years ago so even in the natural world of, of design um you see that the, the solutions are changing massively mm. you think internet of things homes wired for technologies those kind of things so we can't get away from the fact that in the learning space, we have to get above this now and look at a different architecture. Mm. So for me, the kind of driving performance through learning, the vision, again, the thing, late nights working on this, um, I enjoyed the pain to some degree. But, you know, there was pain in this one because for me it was about what do I think about this compelling new vision? And... Um, and I, I think it's worth saying, or we'll probably visit this in a minute, this is not about throwing the baby in the bathwater. Mm. This, this is not just saying what we're doing is going to, none of that's relevant, but we've got to think about a, a bigger vision. So I think for me, you know, I think it's, we start with thinking about how do organisations change? So for me, first section is whole around emerging organisational landscapes, but pretty soon we need to get into think what, what a foundations look like, mm. what a new learning approaches look like. And for some of those as well, um, some of those approaches which I found were compelling have been around for some time, but we just need to think about them in a new way with a new lens, maybe using technology, those kind of things. Well, seeing as we've gone down a rabbit warren, let's disappear down that one for a, just for a moment. And let's consider then, if we have learning architects, now let's look at that phrase for a moment. Have we not, are we not focusing on the wrong thing? Your book is about driving performance. Should we not be architecting or, or scaffolding at least the work like rather than rather yep. than learning because what we what we're doing when we when we scaffold learning and we and we are and we're architects of learning it's almost as if we've gone parallel to what is primary a primary mm. concern for the organization and a primary concern for individuals and it's almost an exercise in making sense of our toolkit and our kit bag, yep. but should we not focus then on scaffolding the work? And would that not make more sense? Right. So I think important starting point on here, and I, you know, using the word learning architect, just just think about this one for a minute. And I was at a conference, and we were, had a great debate around this. Are learning and development professionals stealing words from other professions because we're struggling to describe what our own profession does? Mm. So uh, interesting one, isn't it? So, yeah. you know, 
architecture is a whole different gig, which actually takes me back to my early days when I was involved with computer-aided design and we were doing those kind of things. So I think there's a really good point in there. Um, we don't need to steal phraseologies as much as that may be for a, a few minutes there just helps us think about the bigger mm. picture. We don't need to steal phraseologies from other professions. It's about our profession. So I think for me, fairly soon in the book, what, what I came to was some of the the ways we've done this sort of learning needs analysis i think is a really good point to this one mm. so learning needs analysis we know the evidence base i've found the evidence base i've went i've gone and looked for it. the evidence base is that if we take a learning lens on this we we miss it pretty completely mm. because we're going into the the whole um, vision of this think it's going to be a learning solution so you know learning needs analysis they're time consuming they're difficult they tend not to involve employees, which is exactly what you're saying. This is the mm. work. This is the work which is driving the learning solution. You know, you know, I've got to hold my hand up here. I've done learning needs analysis based on totally subjective performance appraisals that are a year old. Yeah. Hands up on Hands that up one. Too, Hands yeah. up on mm -hmm. that one. You know, so I think, so I think what we your concept of we've got to consider the work drove me very quickly down a line which is beginning to emerge now where performance consulting is the key. Mm. Performance consulting is really what we need to be doing, which I think frames learning in the context of work and the organisation, not in the context of learning. What we're beginning to do is have meaningful diagnostic conversations about what does work need and what do people need? And then we step back from that and think, does learning play a part of that? And in, in my experience now, working as a consultant in big organisations, often learning might have a part, but we're talking about systemic ecosystem type thing so i think you're absolutely right we need to get away from our traditional this is learning this is a learning solution to performance consulting and that's a new skill set for most learning mm. people yeah i think you've you've hit a hit on a really important topic there the i've described for a while that the learning needs analysis is is a lot of the time it's the first conversation about a particular need and we've translated something that is a business or performance need into a learning need. And that's the point of misalignment. We talk about why, how can we align L&D to the business? And my thought of that is stop translating, which are valid and um, demonstrable and experienced needs into something that is aggregated to uh, a common, sometimes abstract level, and then drop down as a standardized solution in inverted commas. Whereas the performance consulting, as you've just described, is understanding the the performance and the system around that and looking to solve that problem. But remember, the learning needs analysis is about resource allocation because our, our solutions and our time, well, first of all, our solutions used to be expensive and heavy. They used to take an enormous amount uh, of time, uh, money, attention and credibility in order to develop procure perhaps schedule and deliver we're talking about months of work so it's a, a, a resource allocation exercise but in today's world where we can move a lot faster and solutions don't necessarily need to be so big and heavy we can actually apply much less resource um not not then for a lesser product, but still something that is aimed at the performance. So it's almost as if the conversation has changed, but the practice hasn't. I think you've you've spot on, um, and I could see where you're going for the minute because there's a thing that say we're going to spend less money on this, mm. hey, but make. But I think the the answer is not less money. It's we're going to target resource for maximum impact. Yeah, and that's the thing. And I think those of us who have designed programs, management development programs, so it's kind of thing we're packing people into hotels and buildings. We mm. realise that this is not an efficient model for learning. So I think 
you're absolutely right. I, th- I think for me, the performance consulting piece, um, and again, talking to some fairly senior leaders recently, this kind of stabs at the heart of the learning professional. Mm. So we're not particularly interested in what you're running in many ways. What we want to know is, is the learning function actually having a, an impact on what we're doing? Yeah. So, yeah, what, some of the things we, we've seen in terms of evidence base, you know, we've all done it. Years ago, we used to count number of, you know, bums on seats. Mm-hmm. How many training days have we delivered? You know, how, you know, what's the average spend per employee? These are, in a sense, meaningless figures yeah. now. The, the bottom line is performance consulting um, conversations gets to the, the crux of what we're trying to do and says, what is, what is the organizational outcome we're driving? So we're not going to track meaningless data. If it's customer service, what are the complaint levels? How do we support in the flow, in the workplace, learning for customer service staff to drive uh, a better customer service? Mm-hmm. So I think in, in driving performance through learning, what I did was I went back and revisited performance consulting models. There was an eye-opener for me. Mm-hmm. You know, there are many of these and I guess what I did, I'm not going to give them away here because uh, if you want them, you can, <laughs> you can, buy, the, you can buy the book. Um, but I, I distilled some cracking questions. Mm. And these are the showstopper questions, which we as learning professionals need to get onto. Mm. And, and I think part of it for me is, is having the conversations with the right people. That includes learners, but it includes business leaders and managers. So we need to get out into the ecosystem, not be driven by learning needs analysis, which is naturally saying it's going to be a learning solution. Mm. And we may come back and say, do you know what, folks, we don't need a learning solution here at all. What we need is a systems change. And then we work with um, OD professionals alongside us, or even we work in there to, to do those kind of things. So for me, One of the foundations for this shift, this new vision, is we move to performance consulting conversations where we forensically diagnose what what we need to do to support performance. Now, I'm completely with you on that, uh, Andy, and representing the listener. um, Sometimes when you ask uh, some of the tougher uh, questions that get to the root of the problem, you're going to be uncomfortable with the answers. Uh, And this is perhaps why there is an even bigger and growing role for digital in learning and development now, which doesn't look and smell like traditional e-learning. But there is also a problem with the low level of digital capability within our profession, which is demonstrated or illustrated, sorry, in um, successive towards maturity reports. For as long as I've been looking at those reports, there's a spidergram that shows that L&D are strong in classroom delivery, in teaching and assessment, in uh, coaching and mentoring and learning administration, and weak in most other areas, but weakest in actual digital capability, which includes Um, data and uh, analytics, it includes digital content development, it includes supporting uh, performance, but that I mean, but those are the low, some of the lowest on on that list. Yeah, you throw social collaborative learning in there as well. I mean, there's yeah. another one we may come onto that in a minute, but yeah, yeah exactly. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, what what do you think this is down to, and what needs to happen? So, a couple of thoughts around that one initially. Um, the number of learning professionals who are struggling with their own professional development. So for me to be able to go in and and diagnose and support a creative modern workplace-based solution, I need to be a modern learner myself. Yeah. And the evidence we have, and again it's in the book, just under 50% of LD professionals are extremely concerned about the state of their own professional development. Mm. So I think one thing on here, again, if we go back to the initial model, is there a resistance to change? Okay, there may be some, but 
part of where we're going on this. A lot of people want to change. So I think one thing we've got to do is we've got to be modern learners ourselves. Mm. It is time to be experiencing what it is to be in digital communities and to create digital content, those kind of things. Um, and for me as well, the game change on digital, you know, and I get to go to many big conferences with vendors who are great. And there's no issue there. And, you know, vendors are, are trying to produce brilliant solutions for us. But we need to think what's going to drive the, the, the learner's experience. And for me, the smart device is absolutely fundamental in this. It's changed the way we live. Mm. I've used it today to, to track my way to, from the station to here. You know, it, you know, I found a coffee shop this morning you know, on it. I've lo- logged into the Wi-Fi. So, so smart devices. So I think for a lot of learning professionals to understand even how a smart device can support learning is, is absolutely crucial on this mm. one. And I just kind of stood back from the, the digital. And, and for me, I've got a little acronym in there called FACTS which is flexible, accessible, collaborative, tailored, and step change. Mm -hmm. Now, for me, let's forget LMSs. Let's forget LXPs initially. What we've got to do is we've got to have technology where learning professionals can say, is this flexible to enable any time, any place learning? Mm -hmm. Is it accessible that people can get hold of the stuff, great learning stuff when they need it? Can we link with other people? Is it collaborative? Um, Tailored. Does it allow me to grab great personal content mm-hmm. and step change? It, you know, does this really have a change in practice, the performance piece? So I think for, for learning professionals, we need to get a new philosophy almost for learning. We've kind of been stuck down the behaviorist end of e-learning, compliance yeah. e-learning, eight out of 10 tests, behaviorist, you know, read the stuff, do the test, see if you can change your behavior. We're now in a constructivist world where learners are helping to construct their learning. So for me, I think we, the, one of the big game changes has to be that we as learning professionals experience experience a modern constructivist approach to learning and then we can replicate what we've experienced ourselves with the caveat andy that this is harder do you know like yeah, I, I, I don't want to belittle anybody's work but but i've been there for 15 years it is easy to count bums on seats it is. it's easy to translate that into days and hours spent of learning and training and it's easy to get the buy-in of stakeholders who are looking to provide learning content because it's part of the employee benefits a lot of the time you sell people into a role because you tell them how good the training is and then you could pull out a slide and say and this is how much we invest in people with alongside what you mentioned earlier the cost per um, uh, employee on that what you're describing there and it being performance focused and constructivist or to affect performance that's harder yeah it is um, but that doesn't mean it's not right. That's right. You no, know, I think this is the deal. And most professions, what's really interesting, David, I, I find on this one, because we, we tend to think we're the only ones going through this. Mm. I mean, the digital revolution is affecting all professions. So what you would do in marketing five, 10 years ago is completely different yeah. now. You know, you look at the info of social media on marketing, all those kind of things. So we're, we're not in a, a vacuum here. But to, to me, if we're thinking about personal, um, effective solutions for me right now most of that revolves around a smart device Mm. it's not the only thing and we of course we need other things and we need we need face to face and you know i still might like hooking up online and chatting to people about learning on there but i love yeah coming today in a studio and talking Mm. to you so it's important but the fact it's more difficult doesn't mean we shouldn't do it so i think there's got to be a commitment for us now that we put the learner at the heart of learning Mm-hmm. And we put the learner needs at the heart of learning. And it doesn't, yeah, it's not just going to be organizational focus, what they need. Well, self-direction is really important. Now they have things that they're pursuing. But providing the tools that people can be brilliant at work without being dependent on events, I think is just a compelling and mm. very exciting vision for us. Yeah, I completely agree. And 
what you just described there with marketing, we had a great conversation uh, on the podcast, Gemma Critchley and I, about the the evolution that marketing has gone through. And it's not a change in activities to achieve the same ends. It is um, a revisioning marketing to achieve different ends. And in yeah. order to achieve different ends, you've got to fundamentally do something different. And that's what I hear you describing in L&D. We're not trying to achieve the same results. And so the occasional classroom and the the completion of some e-learning, that, that will help us always achieve the traditional ends of, of attendance, completion, satisfaction and assessment. But if we are going to focus on different things, such as performance, we've got to fundamentally do something different. And I think that that you talking about mobile there is almost an analogous to we've got to be where workers are. Nice. And, and that is that is situationally as much as it is geographically. Perfect. <clears throat> I wish I'd put that in the book. <laughs> is it, yeah, I mean, that, that's absolutely right. So there's an there's an empathy and an understanding for learners, you know, positioning for those kind of things. So, so I think. That's a really important point. And I think for me, part of this also is around a, what, what socialized learning is. Mm. Um, you know, socialized learning is really important for us because um, that in the past looked very much around face to face in the classroom, whatever. But we know um, that if we talk about socialized learning, this is natural to us. It's how children learn. Mm. They watch, observe, you know, and <clears throat> if we think historically, guilds, you know, skills were shared and people watched and all those kind of things. And we go back to the, the 1990s and you think about Wenger and communities of practice. So what's coming through to me and there's a whole chapter on this one is we're going to recapture socialized learning but in a brand new way mm. and again if you come back to tools maturity and some of cipd's research the organizations that are doing this work there's a significant five five times more likely to be used socialized learning um, than other organizations there's a step change in this one so we need to understand scaffolding um, we go back to jerome bruner and all those mm. kind of things but oh, that's going back to my history there <laughs> but we need to connect learners release control create spaces where folks can do that so yeah so I, I got a little model um in the book around <clears throat> i was getting really frustrated as to why um socialized communities don't work so i'm yeah i, I wouldn't have a look at this so is there, there's there's seven c's do you want me to give you seven c's yeah, so you're please. a teaser seven yeah. c you're gonna i tell you guys you're gonna have to get the book on this one because uh but but socialized learning it has a cause you mm -hmm. gather around something that's your situational piece David. Mm -hmm. the thing you say why are we interested in this it then has the whole things about we create a brilliant culture where people are encouraged to learn we've got to have the right conditions so the third c is conditions we sometimes build the most appalling digital spaces cadence rhythm great communities you know your your podcast is weekly there's a rhythm about mm. this so we know we connect around that content is so vital we need to be able to curate we need to help the the community to you know contribute to each other give credit for the the, the work we're doing together um so i think We've got to rethink social learning. And this is this is one of the most exciting ones for me. We as learning professionals can help scaffold brilliant places like the blue touch paper stand back and let learners learn with each other. I think that's brilliant. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. You've, again, you're touching on areas of, uh, of facilitating communities as well as social learning. Again, going to great depth uh, within the book. I'm conscious we've got to keep yeah. pace in the, uh, in the conversation. Yeah. So, I, and I'm interested, you've got a, a whole section um, on self-directed learning, which again, in the early 2000s, maybe late 1990s, um, it was the utopia of yeah. learning and development. We wanted people to self-direct the learning. I think as an aside, and maybe um, in 
as we were maturing as L&D professionals, we perhaps thought that that was about them going to the LMS and using some of the stuff that we've had. Then Google come and just comes and changes the game. And all of a sudden, we've got self-directed learners at our, in our organizations, whether we like it or not. But having read that section of the book, this isn't just about leaving people free to Google what they want and to just be in charge of uh, of driving their, their their learning tools, their interests and personal ambitions. It is bigger than that. And there's a bigger role for learning and development. <clears throat> there is an exciting role for us. Um, I, I'm a child of the 60s. I'm a lot older than you. You know, when I, there wasn't a national curriculum when I was at school, you know, and we had project based learning where we could explore things that were meaningful to us. Mm. You know, and there's nothing more motivational, compelling in learning when what you're doing is what really matters to you. Now, you, coming back to what you said earlier, um, quite clearly, someone might be, you know, off on a sideline here mm. and it might not necessarily link to the organisation. But you know what? There, there is evidence that there is a high correlation to personal effectiveness and self-directed learning. We want people to be effective in the workplace, giving them some self-direction is really important. What really matters to them in their role? And in my, to, to me, if you're going to have a true learning organisation, it's going to be a learning organisation where there's self-directed learners. So, I mean, this drops back onto self-determination theory, mm. Desi and Ryan. So, I mean, three things. We all want to be competent, <clears throat> or most people do. Not many people come to work to be rubbish. That's right. Um, we want some autonomy. Clearly, I'm going to have some essential things I don't want to do. Incidentally, let's not use mandatory. Let's use essential. Mm -hmm. It's a different dynamic. And quite clearly, it needs to be related to, to others as well. So I think you're right. There's an agenda around self-directed learning here where we begin to provide tools, resources, environments which allow people to flourish. Um, and, and I think that's a really exciting thing for us to do. I often get asked, what about, what, what about the necessary, what about the compliance training? Well, it's like, of course we've got to do that. Mm. But if we have people who have particular needs, a range of resources, a, a, you, know, a, a, you know, a kind of self-directed buffet menu is just really cool. So I, I think it's about now creating, you know, not, not fixed dishes, mm. but buffet menus now. And, I, I, you know, and for me, let's stop using pedagogy. That's that 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 whole kind of concept is around teacher led yeah. with young people. That's where it comes from. So we need to embrace Malcolm Knowles and Andragogy and Hutagogy, where the self direction is what really motivates us. So you know, and I think I think it's Bill Peltz who's now talking about techno Hutagogy. The fact that the the smart devices which we have on the table in front of us are now the means to support that self directed learning. So for me, this is an absolute crux. Whole chapter on this one because mm. we need to think about supporting learners in what's really important for them, their managers and the organisation. Now, Andy, again, representing the listener, as soon as you start throwing new terms, yeah, yeah. they've got to be thinking, yep. not more buzzwords, but this is just another example of where the our profession is keeping up with the social dynamic, with technological dynamics. And whereas pedagogy or, yeah, or yeah. andragogy and, uh, you know, and the emerging terms that you mentioned uh, around adult ad education... We've got to recognise that a lot of learning and development's role in organisations isn't around education. It's yep. around performance. And so we so continuing to challenge ourselves yep. and to understand uh, both the uh, the behaviours and the expectations of yep. end users, of employees, of even of ourselves, and to capitalise on, on those in order to satisfy self-determined, those motivated um, workers within our organisations to do the stuff that they are charged to do 
it, it's essential for us to challenge the uh, our understanding, the research, and also to update our mental models of what we should be doing. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree, and I'm with you. Let's get away from buzzwords, but we mm. do need we do need a foundation for what we're doing here. Yeah. So for me, you're absolutely right. These might be educational terms, but these are actually learning terms, and this is a fundamental shift from us about a dependent learner mm. who's being fed courses and and standard e learning to a self directed learner where we provide a rich provision where and i think another thing around this one is learner generated content mm -hmm. which we're now seeing many organizations powerful stuff well let learners design their own learning well why not because often they have great solutions so i think this is about allowing learners to shape the learning as well so um yeah let's not get on buzzwords but let's recognize now that we are constructing environments where people can focus on things that are important to them and their role and their performance in the organisation, which is why this is in driving performance and learning. <laughs> Self-direction is a key bit in there. Yeah, yeah. No, it absolutely is. And, they, you know, they, there's so much in there that, that we can't cover off. There, there's a, there are great sections on curation as well as uh, area on evaluation and um, data, which, yeah. you know, I'd love to invite you back and, uh, and, and have a chat with you about. I'll tell you but, what, I'll come back and talk about crowdsourced ROI. Oh, wow. <laughs> if you've ever struggled getting ROI, guys, we've just come up with a concept, or I've come up with a concept working with Max Bloomberg about crowdsourcing ROI. But that's for another. Yeah, let's, let's yeah, do that we'll on do another it. occasion. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> but there's a chapter. Yeah, it's in there. It's in there. So, Andy, to 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 end the uh, the conversation off, your book represents some fundamental changes in L&D practice that can be overwhelming to some. But what advice would you give to somebody listening who realizes they themselves need to develop but don't know where to start. So I'll go right back to where we started at the beginning. Okay. Historically, I've worked in very compelling scenarios where people needed to see change in their situation. So that, 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 that is a context I've been in. And one of the most difficult things in there is to get gain momentum. And that for that, we must get a fresh vision. So, mm. I, you know, we're all in this together. You and I have the privilege of sitting here and chatting about it. And, you know, so for, for folks listening in on this, whatever stage you're at, whatever role you're in, we all need to grasp a new compelling vision for this one. So for me, that's about standing back and thinking, what does this look like? And for me, we've got to think how we diagnose differently. Mm. We've got to get away from learning focused diagnostics to thinking about diagnostics in the organization what we're we trying to do how do we design differently not with an event-based agenda but for a resourcing agenda an empowering agenda for learners and that requires new delivery mm -hmm. and again i say it loud and clear it doesn't mean we're not going to do face-to-face -face. it's appropriate on some occasions but we need to think about how technology now supports us with that so I, yeah i i've got a couple of quotes here because i thought there'd probably be a, a rat Vincent van Gogh, this is a cracker. Mm -hmm. Vincent van Gogh is attributed to saying, what would life be if we had no courage to attempt anything? I dream of painting and then I paint my dream. So I'd say van Gogh says, you dream about it and then you go and paint it. Mm -hmm. And Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln is also credited with saying, the best way to predict the future is to create it. So driving performance through learning is my, it's several months of delivering something for me which is a fresh way of looking at this mm. um and for me it's about painting a rich new picture and for that it's been a it's been hard but it's been a privilege to do that so guys if you're interested i guess i have to give a plug it's available at kogan page um publishers you can go on there 
it's available. Uh, lots more thinking there. But David, thank you for the chance to come and speak. Um, brilliant. And everything you're doing around these podcasts is just super. This is exactly what it is, isn't it? I mean, we're talking <laughs> digital and whatever. So you're doing a great job. So thank you for the invite to come. And let's go and drive some performance through learning. Wonderful. Thanks, Andy. We'll put a link to the book Perfect. in the uh, the show notes. Thank you. And if people want to follow you and connect with you on social, how can they do yeah, so? Yeah, so I'm on LinkedIn. Um, that, um, that's one place. But probably for me, the, the primary place is Twitter. I tend to hang around on and... Um, I'm at Andy Lancaster UK and guys I'm creating a whole series of lists on there which you can just steal mm. um, so yeah so if you want to connect on Twitter that'd be perfect but um, yeah it, this connection is really important isn't it mm. hey um, you and I have connected on this one so we're connecting with you guys via audio now so let's keep talking keep the conversation going and let's just really help our organisations to be absolutely phenomenal through brilliant workplace learning wonderful I couldn't agree more Andy thanks very much for being a guest on the Learning Development Podcast thank you it was a pleasure speaking with Andy about his book and the important topics it covers. Having read Andy's book, I recommend it to anybody who wants to understand the drivers of changing L&D and wants a roadmap for where the profession is going. If you're enjoying this podcast, please give us a rating on your podcast app of choice. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, perhaps to suggest topics you'd like to hear discussed, you can tweet me at David in Learning, connect on LinkedIn or Facebook, for which you'll find the links in the show notes. Goodbye for now. <laughs>